Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I just sort of expected to get pregnant basically the minute that I came off the pill. I didn't realize that I could possibly have an eating disorder because the only eating disorders that I knew about were anorexia and bulimia. I'd never in my life contemplated the idea of comfort eating being okay. I'm having a feeling, we'll just put some Prosecco in it. Happiness for me was almost imagining that I was at a child's birthday party eating child's birthday foods. God, after then it was just, it was just nothing. And the thing that comes to mind almost immediately is a Marks and Spencer's Our Best Ever Trifle. There is just something about the simplicity of trifle. It's a very kind sort of pudding, just having friends around the table. I mean, that's what it's all about, food, isn't it? I'm author and journalist Laura Price, and you're listening to Life in Food, inspiring stories in bite-sized pieces. Each week, I interview a different guest about how food has helped them through some of their biggest challenges. With a different theme each week, we'll be looking at everything from food and love to food and family, food and friendship, and even food and grief. This week's episode is Food and Fertility with Kat Brown, editor of the upcoming book, No One Talks About This Stuff. Kat is a freelance journalist, commentator, and social media editor who has written for publications such as The Telegraph, Grazia, and Marie Claire. She's a regular guest on TV and radio and has appeared on BBC Breakfast, This Morning and Radio 4's Woman's Hour. So it goes without saying that I am chuffed to bits to have her on my humble podcast. Kat usually writes about arts and entertainment, but she's here to talk to me today about fertility and her brilliant new book. No One Talks About This Stuff is a collection of essays from 15 writers on their experience of infertility, childlessness, baby loss and almost motherhood. It contains stories from incredible women such as Alice Rose from the Fertility Life Raft podcast, Nanadran Butcher from the Black Mums Upfront podcast, and one of my all-time favourite authors, Sophia Money Coots. And of course, it contains the words of Kat herself, who in 2020 was told after two rounds of IVF and several years trying for a baby that she was unlikely to ever have a biological child of her own. Kat's story is one that has really resonated with me. I was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 29 years old and was unable to freeze my eggs due to a lack of information about the potential risks that stimulating estrogen could have on my type of cancer. I had chemotherapy, which is a type of drug that targets fast-growing cancer cells, but it can't distinguish between good and bad cells in the body, which is why your hair falls out, and it also attacks your ovaries and can damage your fertility. I had hoped to still have a baby naturally after I finished my cancer treatment, but I spent the majority of my 30s single and perimenopausal, and I'm now 39, the same age as Kat, and reaching the end of my fertility. The experience of breast cancer and fertility is something that I've touched upon in my debut novel, Single Bald Female. I've spent the last few years fascinated by the experiences we have as women in our late 30s as we grapple with our dwindling fertility. So as soon as I saw that Kat was crowdfunding for this book, I immediately wanted to support the project, which is something you can do for as little as £15, including a first edition copy with your name in it. And that's something we'll be talking about later in this episode. 
And because this is the Life in Food podcast, Kat is here today to talk to us not only about her experience with infertility, but also about how her relationship with food changed when she was trying for a baby, how she dealt with an eating disorder, and how she comforted herself with food when she realized she wasn't going to become a mum. Kat, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Life in Food. I have never been more excited to be anywhere in my life. Uh, if there's anything that I love, it is food and talking about it. And thank you so much for having me, Laura. Oh, thank you so much. What an honour. So first of all, could you tell us a bit about your own experience with infertility and why you decided to write this book? Well, I don't think anybody ever expects infertility. It's sort of like all those quotes about some people achieve greatness, other people have greatness thrust upon them. And I very much felt like I had infertility thrust upon me. But I think also, perhaps as a relic of growing up in the 80s and 90s, I also felt like I had the expectation of motherhood very much thrust upon me. Uh, All that messaging throughout school that if I were to get pregnant too early, uh, then I would, you know, not have a career and all my potential would be wasted. But there was never any idea of when the right time would be. So I basically spent my 20s in a constant sweat of fear about the prospect of, A, you know, being made redundant which as a journalist happened quite a lot to me and uh, you know my contraception perhaps failing and then ending up pregnant and having to raise a child when I was you know barely raising myself in London so it was very very conflicted so when my husband and I started trying for a baby shortly after we got married um, I was on the one hand really excited about it on the other absolutely horrified because I'd been made redundant again just after we got married, which was a smashing wedding present, if ever there is one. So I was feeling a bit like uh, that. I was feeling very, very ambivalent about it because I was just like, well, you know, my career has barely begun. It feels almost as though my life has barely begun, which is 32 talking. My life had very definitely begun by that point. And, you know, now I'm supposed to be putting all my efforts into raising somebody else who can have their life and find their potential. So, yeah, there was a lot of very conflicted feelings about it. And I just sort of expected to get pregnant basically the minute that I came off the pill, because that's the sort of messaging that we get, isn't it? It's it's very much like women are just dangerous, fertile creatures. And if you look at them in the wrong way, then, oh, no, they're suddenly <laughs> pregnant with twins. Um, instead of, you know, that sort of reality that we aren't taught in school uh, or anywhere, really, that, you know, we've only got about four fertile days a month. So um, after sort of a year of just, of, you know, nothing really happening and obsessively typing everything into the Clue app and more apps and that sort of thing until I basically felt like I was just entirely phone operated. Um, eventually, my husband and I went to go and uh, see a doctor who referred us to a specialist. And we went to see a few specialists at different hospitals. And they all sort of said, you know, variants on the same thing, either, you know, just relax, your womb can tell that you're stressed, which is just the most nails down a chalkboard thing that anybody can possibly hear. Um, or that you're 30, three, four, five. Now, if you were 45, then I'd be worried. And I was getting all these tests back and scores, seeing how many eggs I had in theory and and how well everything was going. And there just didn't seem to be any explanation for it. So we had one cycle of IVF and I got nine eggs from that, none of which were mature enough to fertilize. So we went straight back in the next month and changed the protocol. And I launched in with, you know, every supplement under the sun, more to the many that I'd already been taking for years. And um, and then we got 22 eggs. And again, none of them was mature enough to fertilize. And as the poor child sounding embryologist on the end of the phone said, one of them was just an empty shell, which I thought really was the cherry on top of an already amazingly terrible phone call. So that was sort of the infertility portion of it, which is simply that it was unexplained. No no reason or rhyme. And a sort of small consolation to my husband and I was that in 20, 30, 40 years, our experience will have hopefully contributed towards the science that means that other couples don't go through this sort of weird, unexplained stuff. Because a year later, we decided to try again and this time go to a private clinic that all offered a sort of Chinese buffet of, of IVF <laughs> where you pay an eye-watering sum of money and you just keep going at it until you have a baby. And if you don't have a baby after a certain amount of cycles, then they give you your money back. But the consultant that we saw or rather sort of heard over a phone, because by this point it was the first lockdown, just said that she had looked at our 
you know, charts and everything and all the stuff that neither of us really understood and that it was very, very unlikely that IVF was going to work for me at all again, let alone enough for it to be worth me going through what is actually, now that I think about it, rather than just having the hatches battened down as quite an extraordinarily invasive and difficult and very challenging process. And, you know, for the partner for the partner who isn't being poked and prodded and having needles put in as well. Yeah. So she was just like, well, you know, I, you could try one cycle, but it's just, it's just not going to be. And so then we paid her our 250 quid or whatever it was and just sort of went off going, fuck, what happens now? <laughs> wow. Gosh, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that experience. And we often talk about the wording and using terms like you had an empty shell. It just, it just must be so heartbreaking and so disheartening it is a bit but also I'm a massive drama queen and so I I wrote I wrote notes up about lots of the stuff that I was going through because writing is just a even if it's as it mostly is just into the notes app on my phone is just a a helpful non-stressful way of keeping a journal or a diary without the pressure that those words can sometimes bring and also I mean Laura you must have found this as well throughout your own flipping harrowing story and ghastly experience of many many hospitals and treatment (laughs) sometimes stuff is so absurd as to really make you laugh absolutely yeah and and then it's just like gallows humor or belly laughing at completely inappropriate times I mean after we had that consultation um with the doctor I really I just didn't know what was going to happen next um we'd discussed uh, early on in our relationship, the possibility of adopting if we couldn't have children. And I'd been listening to lots of fantastic podcasts, particularly uh, this wonderful one, which I just recommend to anybody called Some Families, which is hosted by uh, a journalist and a former, well, still film publicist, but somebody who I used to sort of work with years ago. And I loved those stories because they were, they showed that if you, not necessarily if you wanted something enough, but just that there were ways outside of the norm, if you liked, or rather the the norm that is presented to us through literature and and film and tv and just sort of common social storytelling really that there are other ways of having a family but we did look into it and we went to all the zoom meetings and everything and it fundamentally came down to the point that I didn't think that my mental health was stable enough for us to go down that path and which you know my husband was incredibly supportive about understandably and then a few months later uh, I found out that I had ADHD and that sort of, which sounds a little bit like I found it under the sofa. I really don't mean for that <laughs> at all, but I'm also aware that in the telling of sort of my journey, if you like, that it sounds a bit like a really absurd soap opera that I'm trying to desperately to cram into as little time as possible. But yeah, so the ADHD sort of explained a lot of the mental health problems, including the eating disorder, including depression, anxiety, self-hatred really, and and, and self-mistrust. And obviously, if you are going into adoption, you need to be in the strongest mental state that you possibly can be. And also in self-confidence as well, because you need to be as stable as possible, not just for raising your future child, but also for going through what is a fairly like intensive, to put it mildly, a uh, series of interviews and investigations, understandably, by social services and by adoption services. So um, I suppose also it was just ironic sort of discovering that actually the fact that I did have all these mental health issues and later ADHD would probably contribute to me and my husband not being able to adopt at all. So the last few years have been really bloody hard to say the least, in a lot of ways. And they have sort of led me to this point where I wanted to find a way of not necessarily just giving a voice to, but giving an ear to people who might be in a similar situation, even if the details are different. And that's basically why I wanted to draw together writers from all areas of experience of infertility and loss. And They could be parents, they could be not parents, they could not even have started thinking about pursuing a sort of fertility journey if you like sorry to keep using this awful word journey <laughs> but I just wanted it to be a support group in a book for the book that I didn't have and that I know from the the sheer proliferation of candles of lit candles going up during the wave of light to mark a lost baby each year um, that so many of us wish that we'd had so I'm just really hoping that that will bring some comfort to some other people 
Oh, absolutely. I'm fully sold on the idea of this book already. So we'll talk a little bit about the book in in a little while. Um, But you've written a beautiful memoir piece about your experience on your Unbound publishing page. And I was wondering if you could read us a little excerpt from that piece, please. I'd love to. Thank you. Um, As a journalist, it's very, very rare that I go back and look over any pieces again. So I apologise if I sort of go, oh, that's interesting, or just randomly (laughs) burst into tears. After our IVF operations failed, my husband found me a new therapist who specialised in infertility. She looked about 20, and we called her TCT, Terrifyingly Competent Therapist. I respected and admired her, and she helped me to heal until I ghosted her the following winter. She had made the wonderful, thoughtful suggestion that we might hold a funeral for our unborn children to honour them. I said this was wonderful, and then I never spoke to her again. I couldn't hold a funeral because how could it just be us two who loved our children? How could I ask our friends and family to come to a funeral where the only things being buried were memories of people who were real to us, yet didn't exist? How could I equate this thin misery to the lovely christenings and weddings and birthdays we celebrated? How could I subject them to this? And in a much smaller voice, I thought, how could I dare to ask them to hold me through it? In therapy, I'd written a great long letter to my children. I'd even imagined them sitting in the armchair as I'd talked to them, but I wasn't ready to say goodbye. In the early spring, my husband and I made an appointment with a new IVF clinic where we planned to try an all-you-can-eat option where you fork over a lot of money and then keep having IVF until you have a child or go insane. I had been ill with a shopping list of mental illness for many years, so I was pretty confident I could cope with this. We had been given three cycles of IVF on the NHS, but as none of my eggs were mature enough to fertilise on our first cycle, that was the end of that. We paid for the next one ourselves, and now we could keep paying. In the end, our appointment was cancelled because our private doctor broke her leg skiing. And then, because there was a global pandemic, the appointment was moved to a phone consultation, which is why my husband and I were hunched over my iPhone on speaker mode, as she told us that she couldn't in all faith recommend we do any further IVF, because it wasn't going to work for us. We walked out of the house and into the grey, nothing sky of March, walking in silence to Brockwell Park, and then walking home again. Thank you so much for sharing that, Kat. It's such an moving account of some of the things you went through, and I know it must be really painful to share it. If anyone would like to read the full piece, you can find the link in the show notes. So this episode of Life in Food is called Food and Fertility, and I'm very interested in hearing about the nutrition element of trying for a baby. First of all, it stood out to me when you talked about the all-you-can-eat option of IVF, because of course, with any all-you-can-eat option, you eventually get full and you don't want to eat anymore, and the thought of eating suddenly becomes unbearable. I know you didn't really reach that stage with IVF, but you talked about having a raft of other mental illnesses and you actually have a history of disordered eating, don't you? Yes, which came as a huge surprise to me when I found out because I just thought I was greedy and awful, which is sort of what I thought without genuinely being dramatic in this instance for my entire adult life, certainly from about 10 onwards, which was when I first started experiencing what I know now to be depression and then anxiety and then self-harm and insomnia and just it just becomes a Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat thing but the eating was fascinating because about eight or nine months into my husband and I trying to conceive naturally I started to feel depressed again and so I rang up my GP and just asked if they could possibly refer me to, to the talking therapies and obviously what happens then is you have a, a half hour chat with a very nice disembodied voice and I was really surprised because they they asked me why I wanted to have therapy. And I said, oh, because I can feel that old grey cloud coming over my mind again. And also, I really want to do something about my eating. I just wish that I could stop feeling so compelled to eat so much. And like, I just wish I wasn't going into zombie trances when I was eating, you know, chocolate chip cookies from Waitrose or whatever it was. There was a Waitrose next to my then office. It wasn't like a specific type of amazing cookie. I wish. <laughs> And I was so surprised at the end of this call when instead of referring me to therapy, they said that they were going to refer me to my local hospital to um, be assessed for an eating disorder, which was a plot point that I I just didn't see coming at all. I didn't realise that I could possibly have an eating disorder because the only eating disorders that I knew about were 
anorexia and bulimia. And so when I did go and I had this two hour assessment with a lovely, very kind doctor in what looked like lovely slippers. Um, I never saw her again, but I just sort of remembered how comfortable she looked and how comfortable that in turn made me. And we talked about all these things that even though I'd sort of been dipping in and out of therapy whenever I could either afford to or whenever I had work insurance that would let me, that we'd just never explored. And at the end of that, she diagnosed me with something called binge eating disorder. I suppose the easy way of thinking about it is it's bulimia without the purging. So whenever I became extremely overwhelmed or basically I can't, I can't even sort of find the exact points that would trigger it, but whenever something happened or something came to a point when I felt particularly, particularly awful, it was, it was like I went into a zombie trance and I would go and find particular foods that had particular textures. That was always very, very important. It couldn't be anything else. It was very ritualistic. And I would just sort of disappear into it and just sort of work my way through everything until it was gone, until the awful feeling that I had inside me had been sort of dampened down a bit. And and then obviously I'd sort of come to, I mean, obviously I'd, I'd been conscious throughout it, but I'd come out of that sort of state of compulsion when I really did feel as though I was being drawn by an external force. And then I'd just feel full and sick and revolting. But the difference between that and bulimia is that I would never make myself sick. Right. I made myself sick once when I was a teenager and it was such an awful experience that I just never did it again. Although ironically, I would also drink quite a lot during my 20s and 30s up until I eventually quit when I was about 37. So um, I was very familiar with being sick uh, during those periods of my life as well. And is, is that eating disorder something you've been able to overcome? Yes, but not in the way I expected. I really expected that if I worked hard enough, if I went to enough therapy, if I balanced my eating, if I learned about intuitive eating, if I did this, if I did that, if I collected this sticker, if I got all the Cub Scout badges under the sun, and if I, you know, just, I would fix myself, um, which is again, a mindset that I've had for years, because the problem is always me. And my relationship with with using food as opposed to food in general, um, which had actually already always been quite positive, that was helped a lot by a fantastic, a fantastic book called The Last Diet um, by Sharu Azadi, who is an addiction counsellor who I first discovered reading uh, an article um, in the pool uh, where she was helping a writer to steady her drinking. But this was the kindest most wonderful book about disordered eating I'd ever read. And actually one Christmas I posted a video about how much I loved it. And I said, if you would like a copy of this, let me know and I will buy you a copy and send it to you. And I probably ended up buying and sending about 15 copies, men, women, all sorts of different backgrounds, mm. as much as you can tell from a quick glance on Instagram. I didn't ask them anything further about it and I didn't expect anything about it. I just wanted that book to go to where it was needed. Um, but it was also a real source of shame that even though I was reading this book and doing all the exercises that I would still on occasion binge when I felt really, really bad. And to be honest, that was not fixed for me until I was diagnosed with ADHD, until I tried some different sorts of medication. But basically, it turned out that undiagnosed ADHD was this sort of umbrella big boss, if you like, that all of these other little things, including lots of mental stuff, haven't even listed, because again, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, um, that if you sort of treated the ADHD, then pretty much everything else would fall into place. But treating the ADHD is really bloody hard, it turns out. Uh, so I have been trying different combinations of medication, different types of medication since about October 2020. Sometimes it's been really good for about six months. And then I've realised that actually there are other elements that aren't sort of being looked after. So it's fascinating in a way because it's trying to find a user manual for my brain. Because one of the main things that I learned from when I was having my outpatient therapy for binge eating disorder was that I'd never in my life contemplated the idea of comfort eating being okay because in my world there was eating politely like everybody else every word capitalized and there was this ritualistic 
binging, which made me feel so out of control and so upset, but at the same time, protected and comforted and looked after, which is why I had such a, a difficult time saying goodbye to it. Because for years, my eating disorder had basically been my only protection to in a sort of very warped, twisted way to everything else that was feeling very, very wrong in my life and, and inside my brain. Yeah, that's so, that's so interesting to to hear about your thoughts about the way we should or shouldn't eat actually coming from, I guess, societal expectations of of how, what, what eating should be, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And, and how is your relationship with food in general? Does it change according to your mental health um, and how you're doing? Do, do you tend to eat for comfort now? Uh, so I, eating for comfort, but now I, I think the thing that has really changed now and this will sound completely ridiculous, apart from to those people who will understand exactly what I'm saying. The thing that has changed now is that I can eat some of a tub of Ben and Jerry's. I can eat some of a giant bar of whole nut. I can eat some, whereas previously there would be such a, a scarcity mindset that I would be like, I have to eat it all because otherwise I may never see it again. Yeah. It was sort of almost as though happiness for me was almost imagining that I was at a child's birthday party eating child's birthday foods, which is realistically in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, the only time that you were sort of allowed slash actively encouraged to eat cake and biscuits and all that sort of stuff without any of the negative things coming up. Because, of course, my parents' generation was sort of like the cabbage soup generation and, you know, dieting and and looking after yourself and thinking about sweet foods as like naughty and, and bad and, you know, how are you going to look amazing in your aerobics outfits or something like that? And and then the generation before was obviously, you know, the war generation. There was a real understandable scarcity. And then also factored on top of that is just generations and centuries of how people expect men and women to be in certain in certain areas and obviously nice girls don't binge on things they might say no to pudding or something and particularly in the 90s when there was that women can have it all and you can eat loads of cake but you can also be like a size minus 12 or something um and magazines were giving us lots of mixed messaging advertising was you know still going cigarettes are great you guys this is absolutely fine so it's not really surprising that lots of us have sort of grown up with quite confused ideas about what food is and really, really having to unpick that now. And for all that people may still, you know, say, oh, the internet is bad, oh, social media is bad. There are so many incredible uh, newsletters and podcasts and places where people are discussing the dismantling of diet culture and basically just how to eat like a human being and how to enjoy food rather than feeling like you're committing a crime every time that you have chicken with the skin on, which I remember reading about and being, you know, that was distressing to me, even though I obviously had my own, uh, you know, incredibly awful relationship with various types of food. But I think also the thing with food is that, and the thing that can actually be so hard when you are eating eating in a disordered way is we have to have it. It's not like it's not like alcohol where you can just be like, guys, it's okay. We don't need to have communion wine. This is fine. Um, we have to have food to survive. And so if you have a very up and down, chaotic, controlling, just all, all over the place, these foods are good, these foods are bad, just a general unhelpful, unhealthy relationship with food, then it, it, it is just going to exacerbate any difficulties that you already have because we have to eat. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess all those ideas and um, lines of thinking that you you have were formed over your childhood and your adulthood. But going back to when you were a child, do you have an early, happy, fond food memory that springs to mind? I really do. Um, I did a feature for a for the London paper years ago when I had to go and be hypnotised to see if it would stop me craving sweet foods. Um, spoiler, it didn't, but I had a really good <laughs> time and I got some lovely pictures. And I, again, was supposed to be thinking of my very, very first like happy food memory with these sweet foods. And it was of making a cake with my mum when I was about six or seven, maybe. Uh, I, I don't know whether this is actually just because of that memory or because we actually have pictures of a moment like that up in my parents' kitchen, along with my brother also doing it. But that thing of making something 
with somebody that I loved above all else, making something that was a treat and doing it in this sort of beautiful ceremonial way. And then obviously the cake coming out and having the anticipation of it and everything. There's just so many layers to something that is homemade. Uh, and also it takes time, which is again why God knows I've never binged on anything that I've had to make myself. <laughs> I mean, that would obviously have distracted me wonderfully. But also I think just that sort of aspect of celebration of joy is something that I always found incredibly important um, and growing up, I was a voracious reader, uh, partly because there was nothing else. So at breakfast, I would read the back of the cereal packet and I would also read all my mum's cookbooks. Um, and particularly like the cake and party treat ones were always my favourites because the pictures were so beautiful. And it was fascinating seeing how the magic was made. And then again, there was always that sense of possibility that, oh, which one did I like most to maybe make one day? Would I ever use this mysterious thing called vanilla essence, which sounded so <laughs> magical? Um, and I suppose also, as we've discovered through years of, of Bake Off, really, there is a wonderful alchemy to baking. You can't really improvise because if you do, then something's going to fall apart or you'll end up with the world's thinnest Victoria sponge. But it's that predictability as well that if you follow a plus b then you'll get c and if you follow the instructions then you will get something really really lovely that can also be a gift to somebody else to show that you know what their favorites are or you know just how much you love them and i think that's yeah that's a wonderful thing about it and that is still i think the element of cooking and of food that i love the most oh i love that that's so fantastic i i perhaps should have spoken to you before I wrote my book as well, because the um, the protagonist, Jess, is actually, well, she began as the editor of a, food, of a baking magazine and she grew up uh, in a tea room baking cakes with her mother. So basically everything you've just described is, is the, the kind of childhood that she had. So that's, that's really lovely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Um, so, moving on to when you started to try for a baby with your husband. So, obviously, all the guidance recommends that you give up pretty much everything, caffeine, mm -hmm. alcohol, start taking lots of supplements. What sort of dietary changes did you make to prepare your body for motherhood? I think the one main one, because in all of the literature, the one thing that people are agreed on, science and the woo aspect, if you like, is taking folic acid, uh, like 400 micrograms every day. Um, and I was very familiar with folic acid from my years of reading the back of cereal packets, because obviously most breakfast cereals are fortified with vitamins and minerals and a shitload of sugar as well. But there we are. Um, but I was quite pragmatic about getting ready for conceiving because I already 
thought, okay, well, I, you know, I eat plenty of veg and fruit and everything, you know, a reasonable amount of meat. And also because my first job out of university was working in a meatpacking factory, I will only ever buy basically private school educated meat that has had a lovely life because I've seen what happens um, at the other end. But in terms of going down those avenues, which are very, very open to anybody feeling mildly nervous about conceiving, uh, I really tried to avoid anything like that because I'd spent years reading articles about basically trying to find a recipe that would help me stop binging and that would help me stop craving sugar because at the height of my binge eating disorder, it wasn't even a height. It was just like permanently living at the top of Everest because if I try, if I tried to give up chocolate for Lent, for example, we'd get into literally three hours of day one and I would feel like I was physically in withdrawal mm-hmm. just because of the prospect of not allowing myself something. Um, and that wasn't just, you know, <laughs> chocolate having its hooks in me or something like that. It was very much the psychosomatic thought that I can't have this. Why can't I have this? Does this mean I'm a bad person? Have I been a bad girl? Am I not allowed cake? Am I not allowed the nice things? So basically me trying to give up chocolate for Lent, which other people, you know, would struggle with because chocolate is delicious, but they wouldn't have this massive, huge, overwhelming attack to it. So Anytime that I saw a magazine, you know, saying, suggesting a sort of way of eating to get ready for a baby, I would basically skip over it because I knew what it would be. It would be all of the sensible eating advice that we have, um, minus, you know, you know, don't drink, don't have caffeine, all that sort of stuff. And I would check these with the specialists that I went to go and see at the hospital because also um, I was a binge drinker. And I used alcohol much like I used food, much like sometimes I would use shopping, which was, you know, I'm having a feeling, we'll just put some Prosecco in it. I'm having a feeling, well, a lovely glass of red wine in front of the fire. That's fabulous because that sort of fed into that celebration aspect of food, of drinking, of merriment that I loved so much. But always at the back of my mind was that awful dark grey sort of cloud that would also sort of pull in the sort of really negative aspects of whatever I was eating or drinking. I would, I was also like taking a lot of supplements anyway, uh, because I'd seen the wonderful skin guru, Carolyn Hirons in about 2013, after a tip off uh, from somebody that she was doing consultations. And I became a complete devotee of her skincare blog because skincare was something that I could do for myself that didn't involve food or drink or anything. And it was just, you know, lovely, way of sort of treating yourself but I'd been taking like um, omega-3s and zinc and magnesium and and all sorts of bits and pieces um, she actually recommended something called um, quercetin or quercetin one of those words I've ever seen written down which is very common in granny smith apples which I love oh. but which is also something which is supposed to help balance out your appetite um, a spoiler it did not balance out my appetite but also to be honest I don't think you should be relying on like vitamin supplements to try and balance out an appetite that is actually a raging eating disorder. Um, So that was basically sort of how I ran at our time naturally conceiving. Um, I didn't really avoid anything. Everything that I ate was fairly decent and obviously was, you know, up and down with chocolate and and wine and, and cocktails in between. But when our first cycle failed, I thought, okay, right. In this case, I will, I'll go back and I'll just do everything properly and I'll cram it all into the next month, even though, you know, any poor sucker ending up doing IVF ends up with this inevitably horribly drawn to this book called It Starts With The Egg, which is all about improving your egg quality. Um, Even though obviously all of your eggs are sort of determined when you're born and it's, you know, potluck really. I mean, you can sort of make, make the most of them. So then I tried, I just bought even more supplements. Um, I didn't drink, which at that point was a fairly big thing for me. I'd done like dried January and everything, but I really relied on alcohol in a way that I didn't realise was problematic. I mean, it could best be described as very British. Mm. You know, I didn't have caffeine and everything. But all that really happened was that because I relied on on a lot of these things, um, caffeine particularly is it's an interesting one for people with undiagnosed ADHD. And actually 
terrifyingly competent therapist, TCT, was the first person who put the idea of ADHD into my head because I would come into our sessions clutching a bucket of black Americano from the nearest coffee shop, but it never had any effect on me. And caffeine just doesn't really have any effect on an ADHD brain, which is why stimulants are so often used to treat it. It's a little bit like the plus and plus equals minus. They just sort of cancel each other out. So without the coffee to sort of calm my brain down and everything and trying to do all these incredibly controlling things all at once. It was just such, such a mess because ultimately what I was trying to do was control something that I couldn't control. I wanted to feel that, you know, if I did everything right, more more so, and if we were lucky with this new protocol of drugs that we were going to try, that we'd get, we'd get some eggs. But this test um, uh, the, for AMH levels, I think it's anti-malarian hormone, which is one of those things they use to sort of check your own egg quality and how many you have. It said that I had really great egg levels, but when they, when the lovely staff at the clinic came to remove them all, you know, obviously there was nothing, there was just nothing there for them to make anything with. I think one of the things that I feel really, really bad about, and sorry to anybody who hasn't experienced the horror of um IVF is that I just feel really bad for my poor husband having to jizz in a cup for <laughs> absolutely no good reason because oh. it uh, it never really sounds very lovely ever. Well, I'm sure it wasn't the worst part of the experience for you both, but but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when you got that final realization that you weren't going to be able to have a biological child, were there any foods or drinks that comforted you then? I think it was a very good thing that I did find out that. This basically was the end of the road for us when I'd given up drinking. Um, I was about seven months sober by then. And otherwise, I would have done exactly what I did the last time around, which was just drink a lot of Prosecco and a lot of a lot of everything, trying to find an answer. Not in the begin, not in the bottom of a bottle, but just sort of trying to see if I could fun my way out of misery, if I could just have fun. Uh, so I went through like a sort of makeup montage and just kept going and getting my nails done, having a haircut, a blow dry, a fake tan to see if I could miss congeniality my way into feeling better. God, after then, it was just there was just nothing. And the thing that comes to mind almost immediately is a Marks and Spencer's Our Best Ever Trifle. Um <laughs> Because there is just something about the simplicity of trifle and the texture, the multiple of check textures, but also it's a very kind sort of pudding. There's nothing grown up about it. It's not sort of like nobody would ever sell it for Valentine's Day. Like it's not a sexy pudding, mm. but also it's not covered in sweets or, or children's toys or something. So it's not something that you would associate with like a birthday tea or something. It's just something that is very gentle and very easy to eat and uh, and also very comforting to eat in large quantities. So that and mashed potato uh, remain to this day like two of my most comforting things. Now that I'm more aware of, for example, how my body works, I'm sort of prepared for the fact that one weekend every month, my PMT will be concentrated into a desire to eat absolutely nothing that contains anything other than chocolate, mashed potato, or possibly trifle. And um, and actually, it's quite freeing now because I'm expecting it. I can just go with it because I know that's just my body for whatever mad reason, just going, do you know what would really solve these cramps is just like a lot of chocolate brownie something or other. So it's interesting now that I'm sort of more in tune to keeping an eye on what is happening with my body rather than it all just being a constant series of horrible surprises to be like, oh, you know, the fact that you're craving this doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you're going to get your period. So that's fine. You'll be back on wanting something a bit more healthy and gentle next week or the week after but that's hormones yeah absolutely and I think those foods that you mentioned as well are very much childhood foods you know the trifle and mashed potato are foods that take us back to our very British childhoods I think yeah they're just very comforting although I have to say the standard of trifle when I was a child um both at school and at home was was um entirely dependent on whether anybody had managed to sieve custard enough um, discovering that custard didn't need to have lumps in it uh, is one of the most exciting and enlightening experiences of my adult life. <laughs> um, and now that almost two years have passed since you stopped trying for a baby, has your relationship with food re- improved at all? One of the most interesting things that I didn't see coming from IVF not working and everything that that meant and the the just wash 
of huge, blinding, bewildering grief and guilt, because again, I'd never been pregnant in my life. So I felt horrible for feeling this bad when I hadn't experienced the awfulness of miscarriage of baby loss. But something really helpful that I heard on a podcast was David Kessler, who runs grief.com, saying that the worst grief is the grief that you're experiencing at the moment. And that made me just able to just sort of break it down a lot more into very small pieces. But I became completely incapable of cooking anything. I mean, I'd never particularly enjoyed cooking for myself. I mean, if left to my own devices, I could quite happily just live on toast or perhaps beans on toast if I was feeling very fancy, if it was just me. But I loved cooking for other people and finding exciting things to cook and that sort of thing. And I, you know, would usually cook uh, for me and my husband after work and that sort of thing. But apart from the fact that my energy levels had just become so low that you know, I was just basically going straight to bed after I came home from work and just having to stay there to sort of recharge. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do the simple act of love, not for my husband, but almost for myself. I think if there had been an option where I could have just eaten toast, but I could have made something really special, partly to show my husband that I loved him, but also to show how sorry I was that to a certain extent, my body just wasn't going to help us to have a family, then I probably would have done. But my husband is also very aware of my extremely melodramatic qualities and he keeps them in check pretty sharpish. So he would have had absolutely no truck with this. Um, And similarly, he made it very, very clear from the off that even if our IVF or treatment didn't work and we could never have children, he would be more than happy just with me, which was just the most incredible thing ever. And obviously, which I had huge trouble thinking about or acknowledging or remotely being able to accept as true. So he keeps telling me that and and I keep telling him how amazing it is and he is. And sometimes it sort of goes in one ear. So he just took over the cooking. And because he hates shopping and planning, he just started getting recipe kits, like meal kits delivered. And Yes, it gave me another thing to feel guilty about because I felt like we were just being those awful, bougie, single, dinky people, like double income, no kids yet, you know, getting their recipe kits instead of planning and everything. And then realised that, again, this voice was just me imagining what other people were saying, whereas like nobody would have cared anyway. Nobody really gives a shit about what what anybody else is doing unless they've been unfortunate enough to be in the papers, the news story about them. I, yeah, so I felt really guilty about that. But at the same time, it meant that my husband was cooking really like lovely, healthy food that meant that, you know, we were getting five a day without taking a vitamin for it. Um, Because again, my solution for the past few years had just been, oh, I'm sure there's a vitamin for that. That'll be the easiest way because then I don't have to, think about how many ingredients to buy or or meal planning which has always just blown my brain a little bit and um and we're still doing that now to be honest we uh we aren't getting like five meals a week like we used to we're sort of down to three because we're both going out a bit now and and work has sort of changed things but also something that was quite life changed well not life changing but just a really lovely thing was that i had three of uh three really lovely friends from an old job um we've all kept in touch over for dinner at the end of february and I cooked them this beautiful smoked paprika chicken. It's a Maria Elia recipe, which um, a friend gave me about sort of 10 years ago. Um, it's just really, really lovely, a spatchcock chicken. And then I made um, Nadia Hussein's chocolate crisp and peanut tart, which is amazing and which everybody should make and eat at least once during their lives because it's delicious. Unfortunately, uh, I had completely failed to realise uh, that one of my friends cannot eat nuts. Clearly, oh, no. I just never made anything with nuts before, so that was awful. But luckily, everybody had bought so much other stuff that just opened that. Um, and also, it, I'd been so out of practice with using an oven and you know anything that had juices at all, let alone from a chicken, um, that I completely dried out all the sauce, and it was dry as you like. But we had such a lovely evening talking. Everybody was just so happy to see each other and just having friends around the table. I mean, that's what it's all about, food, isn't it? It, It's just having that. And I was was so worried again before they came over about what alcohol to buy and what would everybody want. But then it turned out, you know, one of them was doing dry January. One of them just had a couple of glasses and everybody was fine because it turns out that people who aren't me don't have the same obsessive thinking about food and drink that I've had. 
over the years. And it was just such a a wonderful realisation and just lovely to think I can do more of this. Yeah, well, here's to many more wonderful meals with friends and, and with your wonderful husband, who just sounds absolutely fantastic and the best person to have around you in in everything you've been through over the last few years. Um, so you talked about the possibility of uh, this doctor who suggested having a funeral for the babies you never had. And yeah. also the very complicated feelings you've had because you'd never actually been pregnant. You'd never physically lost a baby. And that's something I really relate to as well. I've never had a miscarriage and I don't want to compare my experience with yours because I don't think I've ever felt the same desire uh, for motherhood as you have. But I do still connect with the idea of mourning this child that never existed. So mm-hmm. I wondered, how have you managed to overcome that thing of comparing yourself to other women and their experiences and instead to try and find community with those women, which is obviously what you're trying to do through your book as well? Just what you were saying there about not wanting to compare yourself to me because I'd really wanted a child is an absolute classic example of why I wanted this book to exist at all. In in stories, whether they are in newspapers, magazines, telly, wherever, Parents are pitted against one another. Parents and non-parents are absolutely pitted against each other. And women are pitted against each other above all else. And what I wanted to do was not, for example, to put together a stories, a, a selection of stories purely by and for childless women, um, partly because um, the brilliant Jodie Day has written an absolutely incomparable book, Living the Life Unexpected, which I would recommend to anybody um, who, for what, literally for whatever reason, and she opens the book with 50 reasons why somebody might not have a child, including they didn't want one. Um, but I, I just, I wanted to bring parents and people who aren't parents and also people who were single, people who hadn't really decided whether they perhaps wanted to pursue parenthood or something and all, all together in one place because something that has really stuck with me, particularly since giving up alcohol, is people telling me to listen to the similarities and not the differences. And I think it's very easy to spend a lot of time looking at the differences, particularly when it's something that if you've gone through infertility or perhaps if you are just having difficulty conceiving naturally, it's very easy to blame yourself for everything because that is a way of giving yourself control back. Whereas if you listen to anybody's experience, whatever their story is, you will find something in that that you can identify with. And their background might be completely different. They might be much older than you. They might be a different gender or different sexuality. Their whole identity in life might look completely different to you. But basically, as much as you know, certain elements on the internet would like to persuade us otherwise, there is a universality in being human. And that is what I wanted to bring to this book. Um, and also to invite people who might have written or spoken a bit about their experiences, but perhaps didn't have, um, I don't know, a, a whole book about fertility or something like that. They might have examined it a bit in a book, but not sort of necessarily just done that entirely because like the fertility sections in bookshops are so miserable because most of them are science books Mm. written by men and there aren't very many story books in there and if they are they are a single person story usually with a happy ending that involves a baby I should say and so I really wanted this to be a book that is all about stories and has a variety of not endings, endings to the text, perhaps, but an acknowledgement that there is no such thing as a happy ending, because basically, until we're dead, that's, that's literally the only time that there is one. But also acknowledging that it's very, very possible to live with these incredibly complicated feelings. Um, so one, for example, that I know a lot of people go through is secondary, perhaps tertiary infertility. And that is where you had your first child with relative ease, and then have found it incredibly difficult and perhaps had to pursue fertility treatment in order to perhaps and maybe not become pregnant with your second or third child and the the guilt there is just immense the guilt felt by people who become pregnant after after infertility treatment is immense the worry the shame and all of this stuff before you've even got a flipping baby and got about the stuff that you know 
raising children is really, really bloody hard and also crucially unappreciated by the UK in particular. So all of those complicated feelings, I wanted a place for them all to sort of be in the book, but also to try and do it through a particular lens of fertility, infertility, because otherwise it would just be the biggest book in the world. Um, because sadly, in pretty much every area of life, there is a, there is stuff that is just not being talked about, that is just not being discussed until it's too late, until after the fact, until after you've been made redundant, until you've been dumped, until somebody you fancy doesn't fancy you back. And part of that is life. But also, I think part of that is just a lack of communication, and lack of openness. So whilst I found some comfort from being quite open on the internet and in my writing, because that's just how I've, that's been part of my healing from mental health problems to, you know, waves, just a big arm moving, just life in general. There are lots of people who couldn't possibly dream of talking about it. And so I wanted there to be a really beautiful, gorgeous looking book in mainstream bookshops that is easy to find, that doesn't have a bloody woman looking sad out to sea (laughs) on the front, as they all seem to do, who wasn't just automatically a white woman. And that just collected these stories so that whatever the story, whatever the experience, you could feel that emotion. You could feel that you were being heard in a way by this support group of other women, even if you might never meet them, might never see them, but you will know that they're there. Fantastic. And you chose to write this book, No One Talks About This Stuff, with Unbound, which is a very unique publisher that allows authors to crowdfund their publications. Could you tell us a bit about that process and why you chose to go down that route? (laughs) Uh, Partly because I'm extremely over-optimistic and didn't really factor in what an absolute bloody ball ache crowdfunding £20,000 is going to be. Like I, I, I ran the London Marathon once and I had to raise about two and a half grand for that. And I raised most of it whilst I was tweeting while running the actual race because schadenfreude is a very good (laughs) pull for people to sponsor you. Obviously, I can't do that now. Um, And so it's been a really interesting thing in finding out basically that I need to stop being so insular uh, and isolated as really I have been, not just for COVID reasons over the past three, four years, um, but I had been isolating myself from my friends, from my family, partly because I was going through difficult stuff like giving up drinking, which was a huge, you know, very problematic. But I did rely on it quite a lot for relaxing and, and problem solving and all that sort of stuff. So having to sort of learn how to be a person without alcohol and then all of the complicated feelings about my IVF not working when really the only story that I knew was of people who had IVF and then they had a baby, even though obviously there may have been many complications before and after that. But I also wanted to go with Unbound because the editor that I'm working with has a really intimate understanding of me and of this book and of the subject matter and really cares about it. And also, I think the main one really is that it's showing traditional publishers, that there is a demand for this sort of book. It's very important for me and for this book to talk the talk and for it to be as inclusive genuinely and as realistic and representative of the many horrible struggles and difficult feelings and gallows humour that women experience whenever the word fertility is involved. And Unbound have definitely been the best place to do that. And they've also been very, um, very considerate and kind about the fact that I'm basically using my dog in most of the rewards. I'm sure I'll figure (laughs) out something that isn't a walk with my dog or similar later on. But yeah, it's a a really, really interesting experience. This is your lovely dog, Sybil. Yes. (laughs) And is there a target date for when it will be published? I would hope uh, that we would look at being published spring, summer 2023. Um, my editor is probably listening to this going, never promise a date, Catherine. What have we said? <laughs> um, everybody who has pledged to it so far has left the most amazing messages, not just about if it is something that they would have liked going through their experience, but also my friend went through this and I wish I could have helped them more. My sister, my brother, my cousin, my co-worker, my, 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 because <sighs> infertility doesn't just affect the person who's 
being plunged with the needles. Like I said earlier, it's the partners, it's the families, it's people at work, it's anybody that loves and cares about that person and that couple and those people. And it's all of the medical staff who are helping a single person to go through perhaps donor IVF or or any of the different and wonderful medical advances that we have. So I also want it to be there so that clinics have a book that they can recommend as a support to people rather than just going, here is another clinical piece of literature. Yeah, I'm absolutely confident that it's going to be fully funded really soon and it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Um, So I'm just going to ask you the quick questions that we ask everyone on this podcast. So number one, your relationship to food, fuel or pleasure? Absolute and adulterated pleasure. Favourite meal of the day? Lunch. Ideally, in my local restaurant on a Friday or Thursday when I finished all my work and can just take my time over a lovely lunch with some coffee and with the dog at my feet begging for cuddles from whoever passes by. Oh, wonderful. Name one food that always makes you feel happy. My mum's lasagna. One food that has healed you? (laughs) Trifle. One dish that reminds you of family? Any kind of stew or casserole that comes with braised red cabbage. We're so similar. (laughs) So good. Um, One recipe that everyone should know how to cook? I mean, they'd have to make it better than me, but definitely Maria Elia's uh, spatchcock paprika chicken. It's either in her cookbook from about 2011 or there's an old recipe on the independent website, which I always end up looking up when I forget how long something takes. Okay, I'll add that in the show notes. Um, And your best meal ever? Any meal that I have with my husband. Oh. That's disgusting, isn't it? Okay, I'll retract that. I went to... The Fat Duck with a group of really close friends a few years ago, and it was just spectacular, not just because the food was really exciting, not just because the atmosphere was great and it was lovely inventive and they let us look around the kitchen afterwards, but because I was there with people who got it. And I think the thing that makes food amazing and lifts it above simply being fuel is the people that you're you're doing it with. And I think it's also fairly telling that when I was running seriously, I used to use leftover chocolate truffles from dinner parties as my fuel for halfway round half marathons oh. rather than gels or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, finally, some food for thought. What is the one piece of advice you would give to anyone in terms of food and fertility or infertility? I think you can read as much as feels comfortable to you but just know that you, you're not going to be able to like poison your baby from within unless you literally eat poison. Like your body, in theory, has been preparing for this since you were born, which is a terrifying and horrifying prospect, especially whenever I'm holding a small baby and go, wow, all the eggs you're ever going to produce, they're, they're just there already. Um, so I think the main thing is, is that if you are having even the slightest twinge about it not happening automatically, particularly because you may be surrounded by people, certainly on Instagram, who seem to have just, you know, looked at each other and fallen pregnant, just do what feels right to you and give your body what it needs. You know what that is. You're a grown up and just sort of trust your instincts. And also, if you do want some Ben and Jerry's or something like that, just have it because restriction is, it's just not, it's just not a healthy thing. And that's the whole reason why people keep going everything in moderation. So just figure out what you, what you need and go with it. Very good advice. Um, Kat, thank you so much for sharing your incredibly moving story. I know you decided to write this book because you wanted to help other women in similar situations. So thank you for being the brave one and helping to build this community of people struggling with infertility in all shapes and forms. If you'd like to buy Kat's book, No One Talks About This Stuff, then you can support her by going to her link on the Unbound website, which I've put in the show notes, and pledging a minimum of £15. For that price, you get a copy of the book in the post when it's published, plus your name in the back of the book as one of its supporters. I, for one, am really looking forward to getting my hands on a copy. 
Once again, a huge thanks to Kat Brown for sharing her story with Life in Food. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. We've got some amazing guests coming up and your support will allow other people to find it. If you want to know more about my book and hear about upcoming episodes of the podcast, please do follow me on Instagram at Laura Price Writes and on Twitter at Laura Price Wright. Those links are in the show notes too. Thank you and see you next time. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.